years ago, I helped organize a sports camp for middle school kids. We had about 85 sign up. We bussed them to the hill country. A number of coaches and college athletes invested in these kids, serving them, preaching the gospel as opportunities came. Uh, a place called Deer Creek hosted us, a beautiful piece of property along the Medina River. Uh, we encountered uh, one slight problem, though. Uh, the final three days, it rained night and day. The Medina River flooded and destroyed the roads leading into the camp. So the food trucks couldn't get in for us to restock. Uh, and the buses couldn't get in to get kids out. So the head guy makes a plan that the next time the river subsides, he was going to canoe one kid at a time across the river. And once three made it across, these 12 and 13-year-olds would hike together about a mile or so up the road where the buses could reach. So that's what we did. We had a sending team of adults on one side of the river. We canoed another receiving team of adults on the other. And the the current was swift. Nevertheless, one by one, he canoed these kids across. All 85 made it out safely. But one thing I'll never forget. Had he stopped paddling and persevering, had he neglected his duty and decided to drift, very likely the river would have taken lives. Being neglectful was not an option for anybody. Drifting with the current instead of persevering was deadly. In Hebrews 2, we encounter the first of several warnings. And the warning here is that retribution awaits the neglectful. God's judgment falls on those who drift away from Christ. In Hebrews, Christians are wavering in their commitment to Jesus. Some are on the, on the verge of apostasy. And part of that is due to persecution. Enemies are doing terrible things to them to persuade them to forsake Jesus. But the other part is due to their own passivity. They're drifting away. They're neglecting their salvation. Well, Hebrews exist to address this problem. Hebrews exist to keep you and me enduring to the end. And it does this primarily by magnifying Jesus' person and work. And then he exhorts the church in light of Jesus' greatness. And we find a very clear example of this in chapter 2. Okay, chapter 1 introduces us to Jesus' greatness as God's Son. He is heir of all things, creator, sustainer, the radiance of God's glory. Uh, He purified us from our sins. Uh, And now He's enthroned above all uh, as the God-man. He is superior to the angels. Therefore, chapter 2 begins. Therefore, here's how you and me need to respond. Read with me in verse 1. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
He was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So let's answer a few questions. First, what must we do in light of Jesus being far superior to angels? The answer is in verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. So we get an action, a message, and a purpose here. The action. We must pay much closer attention. So it's not optional. Christians must pay closer attention. And that means so giving our mind to the message in view here that we truly understand it that we truly sense its weight and its importance and its significance, and then we conform our lives to it. The message in view is what we've heard. What we've heard. Well, what have they heard? In verse 2, look at it with me, it's a message declared by angels. That's one thing they've heard. It's the Old Covenant. Okay? It's the stories of the Old Testament. It's, it's what Ben has been preaching in Samuel the last couple years. But it's also the message of the New Covenant as, as well. Look, look with your eyes in uh, verse 3. Not sure what else you would look with, but your eyes. But just look there. Look with your ears. Um, He says, it was declared, it was declared, that is, a great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us, there they are again, there's the audience, to us by those who heard. So the Lord Jesus declared a great salvation, eyewitnesses heard Jesus speak this great salvation, and then they told the Christians addressed here. So in some then, what they've heard is the word of God. Okay, both as it was spoken by angels under the Old Covenant and by Jesus under the New Covenant. We must so give our minds to God's self-revelation in Scripture and in Jesus that we understand it truly, that we appreciate its, its weight and its significance, and then we conform our lives to it. For what purpose? Verse 1 says that we don't drift away. Growing up in Corpus, we'd go to the beach, right? And one thing we'd do is see how many sandbars out we could go. And about fourth, fifth sandbar, you're all playing and you kind of turn and look back to get a read on where your car was parked, where the picnic table and your stuff was. But without even realizing it, You've drifted hundreds of yards down the beach from where you started. And that's the idea here. The the drifting is, is subtle. It happens slowly over time until one day you look up and you don't know where you are. Imagine a ship setting out to sea and about halfway through the journey the captain kills kills the engine. Hey, we're pointed in the right direction. We'll just coast from here, on, from here on out. You know what will happen. 
The ship will drift away and never reach its destination. And Hebrews is saying that that will happen to you if you don't pay much closer attention to God's revelation in Scripture and in Jesus. Now, we'll circle back to this in a few minutes and, uh, and, and develop what paying attention looks like. But we've seen here that verse 1 is the main exhortation. Verses 2 and through 4 answer why we should pay much closer attention. So it gives us several motivations to obey verse 1. Um, and one of them will develop what we saw at the end of verse 1. We'll get to that one last. So for starters, you should pay careful attention to God's revelation because it's true. Because it's true. It's historically reliable. God acted in history in undeniable ways. Okay, look at the uh, second half of verse 3. It says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. The ESV has attested. Others have. It was confirmed. Uh, The word means to put something beyond doubt. Okay, same vocabulary appears in verse 2 about the Old Covenant. Okay, the message delivered by angels, it proved to be reliable. That word reliable there. So, so whether it was the historical events in Israel's history or the eyewitnesses to Jesus, God's Word is, has been historically true. Christianity isn't a mere philosophy. It is historically reliable. But even more, it goes on to say that God himself bore witness in history. And in part, that came when he punished transgressions under the Old Covenant, verse 2. But also, God confirmed Jesus' words by signs and wonders. Look at verse 4. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, as a church, where have we seen that before? We saw it in the book of Acts, didn't we? Uh, Peter says in Acts 2.22 that God attested to Jesus with mighty works and wonders and signs. Uh, And then we find the apostles doing the same thing as the gospel goes forward and it penetrates new people groups. We see these signs and these wonders confirming that that God is with these men just as 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 he was with Jesus. Signs and wonders had an undeniable apologetic function. They authenticated Jesus and the apostles. And this is why the Jewish authorities get so perturbed, right? Right? How can anyone deny these healings that are happening? It was so obvious to the people that God was with Jesus and now he was with his apostles. And by the way, these weren't just random acts of power, right? These signs and wonders, they gave concrete expression to the message they were preaching. Right? It's one thing to announce that Jesus heals the broken and he rescues the oppressed and then you zap a bird out of the sky. It's got nothing to do with your message. But it's another thing when you announce that Jesus heals the broken and rescues the oppressed and then the lame start leaping like the deer and, and, and unclean, unclean spirits are fleeing in Jesus' name. And that's how those signs were authenticating the apostles' message and the gifts of the Holy Spirit function likewise in the church. Hebrews means to keep these Christians paying attention to God's word because it's true. History bears this out. Eyewitnesses confirmed it. God acted in undeniable ways to authenticate these, this, this message. 
Another reason we must pay closer attention is God's revelation is authoritative. It's authoritative, right? When the people didn't obey the old covenant, they were punished. God was just and he had the authority to do so. And note also how he calls Jesus Lord in verse 3. He was declared at first by the Lord. Well, who is the Lord? Chapter 1 told us. He's the rightful heir of all things. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He's enthroned above all. He's superior to angels. And this Lord has delivered a message. But the emphasis here isn't that he delivered that message from heaven again. Through angels again. Something new has happened. A greater, fuller revelation transpired in that the Lord himself took on flesh and he spoke these words as a man. He embodied what the law and the prophets anticipated. We must pay attention because Jesus isn't just another prophet. He is Lord. He spanned heaven and earth to bring us God's final decisive revelation in the flesh. Why else should we pay much closer attention? Because God's message in Jesus reveals a great salvation. It reveals a great salvation. That's what he calls it in verse 3. A great salvation. The the nice thing is that Hebrews uh, goes on to then demonstrate why this salvation is so great. Okay, the whole book explains the greatness of Jesus' person and, and his work. Especially as that work ushers in a new and better covenant. But let me, let's just get a taste from, from chapter 2 alone. So this is sneak preview for the next couple of weeks. But we get, in the, in, in the first uh, five verses or so, we get this, this theme that Jesus is the new Adam. And that he comes to restore the dominion that our sin destroyed. He comes to rightly order the cosmos and subject all things to his lordship. And then as you go on past verse 9, you also see that, that Jesus, he ruled angels, but he became lower than the angels. He became a man to suffer and die and to sanctify many sons and then bring them to glory. Also in verse 14, the devil uses the power of death to enslave people. But God's Son took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the devil and deliver people who've been held in lifelong captivity. In chapter 2, verse 17, he becomes the, the faithful high priest who makes propitiation for our sins. That is, he satisfies God's anger against our sin. And But even that's not all. By resurrection, he's alive and he's still able to help those uh, uh, who are being tempted themselves. So he becomes this faithful high priest who not only gives himself for us, he rises from the dead to continue helping us throughout life with our own temptations that we might overcome them. Beloved, that's a great salvation. And that's just skimming chapter 2. We must pay closer to God's revelation in Jesus because it reveals a great salvation. To drift away from this revelation in Jesus is to drift away from that great salvation. Is to drift away from the only one who gives this great salvation. Which leads us to one further motivation here. We must pay much closer attention 
to God's revelation because serious judgment awaits those who don't. Serious judgment awaits those who don't. Look at, look at verse 2 again. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? That is, how shall we escape a just retribution? If we neglect such a great salvation. You see the connection to verse 1? Neglect is the opposite of paying much closer attention. Neglect is what leads to the drifting away. And why doesn't he want you to drift away? Because if God's word through angels proved reliable, how much more reliable is the word through the one who made the angels? If you wondered why he developed Jesus' superiority to angels in chapter 1, this is why. Right? He was going for this warning all along. And later in Hebrews, we learn that these Christians are contemplating a return to the Old Covenant. Right? Acts 7 and Galatians 3 teach that God delivered the Old Covenant through angels. Acts 7.38, for example. Moses was with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. Acts 7.53. You who received the law as delivered by angels... Galatians 3.19, the law was put in place through angels. That's how God delivered the old covenant, through angels. And that covenant proved reliable. How do we know? Well, every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. Okay. At breakfast... Uh, the kids and I are reading through the book of Numbers. And again and again, we've seen this play out, where the people rebel against the covenant, and then God responds with punishments. Okay, everybody over the age of 20 has to die in the wilderness. Uh, They don't go out to battle with the Lord, the Lord's not with them, and they end up being defeated. Uh, A Sabbath breaker gets executed. Uh, At one point, the the earth swallows Korah's household. God's history with Israel proved His word was reliable, this this covenant word, with all of its stipulations. I mean, haven't we seen this as as Ben's been preaching through, through Samuel as well? Hasn't Ben shown us the severity of God's judgments when they fall on the people of God or when they fall on Saul or when they fall on the king? How much more when God doesn't merely deliver words through angels, but He becomes the Word incarnate? You see, He's moving here from the lesser to the greater. If they experienced judgment when they neglected the law, how much more will we experience judgment by neglecting the law's fulfillment? 
God's fuller and final revelation has come. The person and work of Jesus Christ bring all the types and shadows to their fruition. You have more revelation in Jesus. You have the picture complete. You don't just have redemption anticipated. You have redemption accomplished in Jesus. But to whom more is given, more shall be required. If you neglect this great salvation in Jesus and drift away, only judgment awaits you. And it's a worse judgment than the kind that was experienced under the old covenant. The punishments under the old covenant were but shadows of the judgment to come. They were temporary. The one to come is eternal. They were earthly. The one to come is heavenly. This is not a loss of rewards. Some will argue here, well, he's talking to Christians, so it must be talking about a loss of rewards. But this warning comes alongside numerous others that form a coherent whole. And they describe this judgment as falling away from the living God, failing to enter God's rest, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's a punishment worse than dying under the law without mercy, chapter 10 says. This is no mere loss of rewards. This is drifting away from a great salvation. What is the opposite of salvation? Wrath under God's judgment. If you drift away from Jesus Christ, the only sacrifice for your sins, then you are without atonement and therefore without salvation. That's his point. And that is written for Christians. It is written for you and me. Please hear this. Because there are many people playing out in the waves, telling themselves once saved, always saved. And they don't even realize that they are miles away from where they need to be. They're not paying attention to God's Word at all. They're they're paying attention to the world and then tacking Christian cliches on the end of their day to keep living the life they would have lived anyway without Jesus. And all the while they are drifting, drifting, drifting away. The Bible gives no assurance to people who cease looking to Jesus. Who cease chasing hard after Christ and His glory. Don't misunderstand me. Once you are truly saved, God will keep you and preserve you and enable you to persevere to the end. But God uses means to keep you persevering. And this is one of them, his warnings. The Holy Spirit uses warnings to keep our eyes on the prize of God's glory in Christ. All those who are truly saved, you know what they do? They they read a warning like this. And they respond, Lord, then help me not neglect this great salvation. Lord, help me pay much closer attention. Your judgments are right. Your words are true. So help me know Christ 
more keep my fingers gripped around Him. He is my only hope for a great salvation. They don't blow them off. They fear and tremble before the Word of God and ask His help. God's warnings are one of His means to get you across the finish line. There are other ways, right? His promises are pulling us toward the finish line and we're running the race looking at the promises. And you know what the warnings do? We start turning our heads like, hey, they snap our heads around. Keep your eyes on the prize. That's how the warnings work. So the promises are pulling us. The warnings are pushing us to get us to the end. So if we're going to persevere, let's get a better hold on what it means to Neglect a great salvation and also pay attention to a great salvation. I could go to a number of places in scriptures to develop this, but I'm just going to stick with Hebrews and and ask next, what does neglecting a great salvation look like? We neglect a great salvation and risk drifting away when we become dull of hearing And don't press on to maturity in the Scriptures. When we become dull of hearing and don't press on to maturity in the Scriptures. I'm getting this from chapter 5. They've been Christians for a while. He says, "You, you should have been teachers by now, but you're not. They've been lazy in knowing and understanding their Bibles. Scripture doesn't inform their minds such that they can barely distinguish between good and evil. They don't sense the weight and the importance of the things that God's Word has revealed. I wonder if some of us are like that. You've claimed to be a Christian for years. You claim to to know Jesus, but you're not in the Word regularly. You show little interest in improving your knowledge of the Bible. Some of you, you know, should be teaching others the Bible by now, but you can't because you haven't made it a point to know it yourself. Why is Leviticus in your Bible? Why is Numbers in your Bible? What did it mean for Israel? How do those books point to Christ? In what ways should it nourish the church when we read them? Can you answer those questions? If not, what's your plan so that you can answer them? What are you going to do about it? The elders are ready to help you figure that out. This is only part of our ministry here, but we love teaching you how to get those answers. We could point you to other brothers and sisters as well who are mature in the Scriptures to help you figure that out. Right? Come to Bible studies. Come to discipleship hour. Form another men's group. Visit the book nook back there and see what topics are developed from the Scripture. The point is that we can't just coast here. We must press on to maturity in the Scriptures. And that includes really sensing the weight and the importance of them. Not just knowing kind of the facts of of what the Bible says, but actually sensing the true weight and the importance of, of the things you're reading. 
Right? When Ben's, when Ben's preaching through Samuel, do you just kind of gloss over? Like, I'm, I'm waiting for the New Testament. I'm waiting for Hebrews. Or are you hearing the judgments and going, good night, I've got to get rid of this sin. And good night, I need to lay hold on Jesus more. Do you sense the glory of God's holiness in the old, from the Old Testament and the New? Do, do you just... Did you just kind of write off books like Ecclesiastes as not all that important? And and he's sitting here saying to, to do so is deadly. It's deadly because if you don't grasp the importance of the things under the old covenant, you're going to miss the importance and the significance of the things of the new covenant. We also, great, uh, we also neglect a great salvation and risk drifting away when we treat the world's fleeting pleasures as greater treasure than what we gain in Christ. When we treat the world's fleeting pleasures as greater treasure than what we gain in Christ. I get this from Hebrews 11, uh, where it says of Moses that Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, if Jesus Christ is an, is an infinitely valuable treasure, he's infinitely ba- valuable because he's infinitely glorious. And keep this in mind, Moses didn't have the New Testament. And yet, he considered the reproaches of Christ to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Would you be able to put that together from the law? So you have this picture of Christ. He's infinitely valuable. No other pleasure in this world compares to the pleasure of knowing Him as He is. But I wonder if our co-workers would know that based on the things we usually seem most excited about. Like a pay raise. A new car. I landed that sale the other day. A new home, a better boss, an easier schedule. Your team won. A baby's first steps. Now don't get me wrong, these things are great. And some of them we should be tickled to death over. But all of them together combined don't hold a candle to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if can people really tell that from the way we're interacting with them on on a regular basis. I wonder if our spouses and children would know that that, that your greatest treasure is Jesus when they hear us complain about the things we often complain about. When we're groaning about the weather and the so-called inconveniences of love but express hardly any grief over the lost state of your neighbor's soul. I wrote that one for me. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We further neglect a great salvation and risk drifting away when we abandon God's grace... And embrace strange teachings for our spiritual strength. 
when we abandon God's grace and embrace strange teachings for our spiritual strength. So this is Hebrews 13, 9, where he says, do not, be led astri- do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those, who, those devoted to them. So what have, what have they done, right? Over time, they've, they've placed more confidence in special foods and regulations concerning food than in the grace of God. And as Paul says elsewhere, food will not commend us to God. Abstaining from some or eating others, it makes no difference. We're accepted before God based, by, by grace, based on grace alone, in Christ alone. But the question, though, is how they get there. How'd they get to the place where their commitment to various food laws become their source of spiritual strength versus the grace of God in this one who is the heir of all things and the creator and sustainer of the universe? How do you get there? You get there by neglecting a great salvation. By not paying careful attention to the gospel of grace. By not being in in awe of it anymore. Are we so bored with grace that we become vulnerable to some strange teachings ourselves? Is it possible that that in a desire to commend what is good to our country, uh, about our country, that some of us have begun equating godliness with patriotism? And loyalty to the flag, even where that loyalty skews one's devotion to the gospel? Is it possible that in a good desire to seek justice in society, some have mixed the gospel of grace with divisive rhetoric that denies our common identity in Adam and looks to effect change by a political activism devoid of the grace and the forgiveness that we find in the cross? Or maybe it's various forms of legalism, right? It's, it's not beyond us to sometimes raise our own personal preferences to a level that says our ways are more acceptable than, than, uh, are more acceptable in God's eyes than yours. Whether that's what kind of food you eat or the, or the kind of schooling you, you decide to do with your children. Or what he or she deserves for their sins is far worse than what I deserve for mine. And slowly over time, we drift away from strengthening one another in the grace of God and valuing human attainments instead. So these dull hearing, fleeting pleasures, strange teachings, just a few ways we can neglect a great salvation and and risk drifting Away. And the solution to this, he mentions, to, to combat this, he says, that we've got to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. But what does that look like? What does that look like? I don't think Hebrews is silent about this either. We pay much closer attention when we devote ourselves to understanding the Scriptures and how they reveal Christ. Several times we're we're commanded to consider Jesus in Hebrews. And then he uses the scriptures to explain Jesus' greatness. We're told in chapter 6, verse 1, to press on to maturity. A maturity that includes building further on the basic doctrines in Christ that we already know. 
And the great thing about Hebrews is that he shows us how. He is a good teacher. He takes his readers along as if to say, come with me, my friends. I want to show you how to mature in the scriptures. I want to show you how to sense the weight that you ought to feel under the old covenant so that you understand the glory and grace and, 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 and seriousness of the new. And then he equips them how to read and understand the Old Testament in light of Christ. He, he helps us sense these things and get, get our bearings straight. You see, he expects them to be already so impressed, so amazed by the Old Covenant, by that which was lesser, that the New Covenant should just floor them. Right? It's, it's like somebody, like the difference between the Wright brothers' first plane and the F-35. Like you see the, you see the plane that the Wright brothers created and then you see the F-35 and you're like, good night, that's crazy. Although in their case, they might, it might be a little worse than that. He, these, these people who are drifting away might be more comparable to the people who saw the Wright brothers' first plane and they thought, big deal. Oh, little short flight like that. Why'd you put on all that work? It's not amazing. And then they walk away and go home. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. You need to be the guys who are crazy intrigued by this plane that just took off. I don't know how, I don't care how many feet it went. And that equips you to be like, good night, look at the F-35. Make sense? You see, they were so bored, they were getting so bored with the old, uh, with the first covenant that they can't even really see the significance of the new. And Hebrews helps us not to be like them by saying, you've got to pay much closer attention. So take your cues from Hebrews and then devote yourself to understanding how the scriptures reveal Christ. We also pay much closer attention when we exhort one another with the implications of Jesus' person and work. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another every day. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet with one another, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Well, how do we do that? The same way the Hebrews does it, right? He proclaims the person and work of Jesus, and then he shows them what that means for their lives. Right? Sometimes it comes in the forms of warnings, like, like here, Other times it comes in the form of promise. At others it's a matter of teaching, you know, how the Old Covenant relates to the New and what life now looks like under the New. How it differs from the Old. We know that we're paying attention when Jesus' person and work compels moral transformation and kingdom action. If it's not getting, if, if it's not compelling those things, you're likely not paying attention. You're likely not seeing Jesus as he really and truly is set forth in the Bible. Paying utmost attention to our great salvation also includes laying aside every weight and sin to gain more joy 
in knowing and following Jesus. That's, that's Hebrews 12, verse 2, running the race, right? Combined with Hebrews 11, the reproach of Christ was greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Remember, this is a great salvation he's calling us to pay attention to. This is greater wealth he's calling us to pay attention to, right? God isn't calling us to pay attention to something boring like a statistics textbook. He's calling you to pay attention to joy, greater wealth, greater treasures in Christ. Who wouldn't want to pay attention to that? He's calling us to give our minds to God's self-revelation in Jesus because that's where true joy is found. That's where infinite blessings come. And when you see him truly as he is, folks, you want more. You do. You really do. If you see him as he is, you want more. Such that everything that that keeps you from having more of him, you want to get rid of. You want to shed. It's got to go. And then one more. We pay more careful attention to our great salvation when we draw near to the throne of grace for help in time of need. When we draw near to the throne of grace for help in time of need. That's Hebrews 4.16. You see, by the new covenant in His blood, Jesus has given us free and open and, and, and confident access to the Father. And it would be seriously neglectful to ignore that amazing opportunity to pray, to seek His face. But to pay attention to what God has actually achieved for us, to pay attention to Jesus' work that is so comprehensive in the forgiveness of our sins that we have access with God, that will put you on your face before the throne of grace. That will lead you to to want to run more and more often in prayer. These are but a few ways that Hebrews teaches us to, to pay more careful attention to what we've heard lest we drift away. May He accomplish such a work in us as we continue to consider Jesus' greatness. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.